0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 17. Today I will be talking about the murder of Steve Schulhoff. My sources for today's episode are Snapped, Season 8, Episode 6, Wikipedia, My Crime Library, and Orlando Centennial. All of my sources are linked in the show notes.
1: It was a romance with all the elements of a textbook teen tragedy.
0: They were in La La Land like most teenagers
1: are. It's like a a Romeo and Juliet. She was sweet 16. She was a good girl. He was an older man of 20. She was underage at the time, so that was something they had to kind of keep secret. When her father found out, he was determined to separate them.
0: Dad was pretty serious about having him arrested.
1: And he ultimately succeeded, but only over his dead body.
0: There was blood all over the walls, on the ceiling.
1: But the young lovers had a plan that could sow the seeds of reasonable doubt. Basically, she came in and fell on the sword for him. Michael Morton is not the person who killed my father. But would their scheme work? How is the jury going to believe that this little girl would do that to
0: her father? On February 10, 2004, Elaine Bach, the girlfriend of Steve Schulhoff, had a strange feeling. Steve would usually call her to check in throughout the day. She also tried to call him, and his phone was going straight to voicemail. Around 3 p.m., she decided to go over to his apartment that he shared with his 16-year-old daughter, Courtney. Elaine pulled up to the apartment and thought she saw Steve outside walking his dog. However, it wasn't Steve. It was Michael Morin. Michael was Courtney's 20-year-old boyfriend. Elaine became suspicious because Steve didn't like Michael, and he wouldn't let him wear his clothes or walk his dog. Elaine also noticed that Michael was on the phone. She got out of the car and was about to go inside when when Courtney met her at the door.
1: Courtney stepped outside the front door, and she started a conversation with Courtney, wanting to know about where her father is. She's worried about him. And she said,
0: I don't know. I haven't seen him.
1: And I said, well, his truck is right there. Elaine pushed past the teenager and tried to open the apartment door. It wouldn't budge. Courtney had locked it behind her. I turned around to ask her for the key, and she was gone.
0: Now, before I get into the crime, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the background of this episode and about Steve, Courtney, and Michael. The issues between Steve and Courtney began when he and Courtney's mom got a divorce. Courtney also met Michael at a party in 2003. After they met, they became inseparable. Courtney tried to live with her mom, but she was always sent back to live with her dad, which she hated. Michael had been a star athlete in high school, but he dropped out of college after he met Courtney. Courtney also started skipping school, and her dad caught on because the school would call him. Courtney also began stealing her dad's credit cards, and she racked up serious debt. Steve and Courtney had to move out of their family home and into an apartment. One of Courtney's friends said that she had witnessed a fight between Steve and Courtney one day.
1: Overextended after the divorce, Steve could hardly afford the extra expense. In fact, he could barely meet the mortgage payment as it was. He was already struggling and just, you know, he was putting on him and his wife living there, you know, with his child. You know, so times were hard. And as the bills piled up, the friction in the household heated up. He was a little stressed
0: and a little mad at her. Kind of see why.
1: Friend Katie O'Rourke was with Courtney when one showdown over her spending occurred. I heard him, he's like, Courtney, get
0: your ass in here.
1: Katie didn't witness what happened next, but she did hear it. I heard him. I heard him screaming. I heard her crying. I heard slapping. Moments later, Courtney came out of the room, teary-eyed. She was like, let's get the heck out of here. Let's leave.
0: And we left. Courtney began telling her friends and Michael that her dad abused her. It was later stated that there had been an investigation into the abuse, but it was never proven. But Steve did admit that he slapped Courtney before. Steve and Courtney's relationship was getting worse by the day, and it imploded when Steve told Courtney that she couldn't see Michael anymore. That didn't stop them. Michael stole a car, and the two of them fled to Maryland, where Courtney had extended family. The trip didn't last long because no one would take them in, and when they returned to Alamante Springs, Michael was arrested for stealing that car. He didn't spend that long in jail, but he violated his parole on New Year's Eve 2004 when he stole his dad's car to go and see Courtney. He was arrested again and charged with grand theft and parole violation. He spent a month in in jail and was in frequent contact with Courtney. Courtney begged her dad to help her get Michael out of prison, but he said no. Michael was released from jail on February 3, 2004. He had been kicked out of his apartment and was pretty much homeless. Once again, he turned to Courtney and she snuck him into her dad's apartment.
1: He had been sneaking in and out, staying there at night. Courtney would let him in through the window. But with her dad sleeping in the next bedroom, it didn't take him long to figure out that something was up. He suspected that she was seeing him and that he was coming to the apartment. That weekend, Steve got confirmation when Michael's parole officer called the apartment. When he got out of jail, he listed Courtney's address at the place where he lived. After Michael's parole officer called him, Steve Schulhoff called the police.
0: As you heard, Steve knew that Courtney was sneaking Michael in, and this was confirmed when Michael's parole officer called Steve. Michael had put this apartment as, as his permanent address. It's safe to say Michael wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. Steve called the police on his daughter. Courtney told the police that she had snuck Michael in because he had nowhere to live. This was wrapped up right away, but Steve did give his daughter one more ultimatum. Tell Michael to leave or I'll have him arrested. So back to February 10th, 2004, Elaine called 911 after she couldn't get into the locked apartment.
1: It was a little past three in the afternoon on February 10th when a 911 call came into the Altamont Springs, Florida Police Department from Steve Schulhoff's girlfriend. We got a routine call. It was just a normal day, um, to an apartment complex, uh, reference to a female that um, was very concerned about her boyfriend. I said, you know, my boyfriend is, I haven't heard from him all day. When the officers arrived, Elaine frantically explained the situation, including the strained relationship between Steve and his daughter and the trouble over Courtney's boyfriend, Michael Morin.
0: She was hysterical, saying that he'd been having problems with his daughter,
1: Elaine also explained how she'd stopped by the apartment moments earlier to check on Steve and had seen Michael Moran outside walking Steve's dog. She said that when Michael had seen her, he'd started walking in the opposite direction.
0: The police arrived and realized they had been there many times before. They were able to find a sliding glass door in the back of the apartment that had been unlocked. When they walked inside, they found a horrific scene. I was able to slide open the door. And as I entered, I started screaming and yelling the police.
1: Inside the bedroom, the officers had made a grisly discovery.
0: It was dark. Officer Gray turned on the lights and when he did, the room lit up, blood red. There was blood all over the walls, on the ceiling.
1: Next to the bed, the officers found Steve Schulhoff, dead.
0: When we looked down to the right, the man we are looking for had been stuffed into a Rubbermaid um, and was deceased. Steve Schulhoff was found dead. He had been beaten so severely that his skull was split open and his ear was torn. Steve's body had been stuffed into a Rubbermaid bin, almost like the killer or killers were planning to dispose of his body. The murder weapon, an aluminum bat, was found at the end of his bed. The police looked around the rest of the house and noticed some credit card bills sitting out on the kitchen table. Some of the transactions had been highlighted. A man's shirt was also found with traces of blood on it. The shirt was later identified as Michael's. The police had talked to Elaine, and she said that she was sure Michael Morin and Courtney Schulhoff did this. There were many police officers that were now on the lookout for Michael and Courtney. It didn't take them long to find Michael. He had been at the Allemant Mall right across the street from the apartments. Once Michael saw the police officers, he ran. He was eventually found hiding in a bathroom stall of a movie theater. He was brought into the police station and his clothes were collected for evidence. Michael also had Steve's wallet, cell phone, and car keys on him. Courtney arrived at the police station shortly after and turned herself in.
1: She had hitchhiked to her mom's apartment. Courtney's mom brought her to the police station. In the interrogation room, Courtney gave a brief statement. She pinned the murder entirely on Michael. She said she had found out after he had done it, that she didn't know he was going to do it. But while Courtney was blaming Michael for the murder, he was in a nearby interrogation room telling a very different story. He's basically saying, I haven't been over the house in so long, blah, blah, blah. According to Michael, the sequence of events that led to Steve Schulhoff's death had begun on Sunday. Michael said he'd been asleep, Hidden in Courtney's closet when she came into the room at around noon. Like, My dad knows you here, and I was like, oh, and she's like, quietly, <laughs> climb out the window, and I'll meet you at the mall now. Michael said he had basically spent the next 48 hours on the street. I was sleeping outside behind a dumpster at a closed-down shopping center. According to Michael, he'd met with Courtney on several occasions at the mall and a nearby park. But he also claimed he had only been back inside the apartment once. It was less than an hour before his arrest, when he had dropped by the apartment to meet Courtney. She handed me her dad's wallet, she handed me his cell phone, she handed me his car keys. And then she hands me the leash thing, which is retractable, and I was like, what's this? And she's like, don't worry, I'll explain later. Michael said Courtney had asked him to walk the dog, which he was doing moments later. When Elaine pulled into the apartment parking lot. I see Elaine, which is Courtney's dad's girlfriend. And I'm sitting there like, uh-oh, Courtney's dad must be home. So I take off her. Courtney ran, too. Michael said they had spoken briefly during the chase, just before splitting up. I was like, what's going on? She said, like, nothing. And I was like, well, why was Elaine there? She's like, well, I'm just worried we're going to get caught. Was it possible that 16-year-old Courtney had murdered her own father in such a brutal manner?
0: The police doubted that 90-pound Courtney was the one who swung the bat and had dented her dad's skull. They were convinced that someone with a lot of strength had to be the one to do it, so they continued talking to Michael. Michael eventually confessed and said he did it because Courtney asked him to. She
1: just wanted to get rid of him. She didn't want him in her life anymore. She wanted to get rid of him
0: that last part was a little hard to hear but michael said that courtney wanted steve dead courtney and michael were both charged with murder courtney was originally charged as a juvenile because she was only 16 at the time on march 2nd they were both indicted on premeditated murder which meant that they had been planning this for a while now courtney was being charged as an adult on september 26th, 2006 almost two years after steve schulhoff died courtney went on trial
1: On September 26, 2006. Two and a half years after her arrest, Courtney Schulhoff walked into a Florida courtroom to stand trial for her father's murder. She looks like just any typical
0: sweet little innocent teenage girl. It's hard to believe that she she was involved in this.
1: If convicted, she faced life without parole. The maximum punishment the law allowed. In the state of Florida, you have to be 18. So Courtney was never eligible for the death penalty. Michael Morin, whose trial was scheduled for the following April, faced a possible death sentence. Uh, the day after he was arrested, the state immediately announced that they were seeking a death penalty. Although when Courtney sat down at the defense table that morning, she didn't look too worried about the serious charges she faced. She seemed happy-go-lucky. Just not only was it another day, but She seemed happy. She laughed and smiled
0: and giggled and
1: acted like it was all a big joke.
0: The prosecution's theory was that Courtney killed her dad because he was in the way of her getting anything she wanted and was in the way of her relationship with Michael. Michael confirmed that they planned this for a while. They waited for Steve to come home that night and go to sleep, and that Courtney placed the murder weapon outside the door. The prosecution also said that Steve never abused Courtney and that Courtney had manipulated Michael into doing her dirty work.
1: Michael Warren is the person who actually killed me. There's no question about that. But the evidence also can show you that Courtney participated. She encouraged. She did acts in furtherance of getting this act done. The prosecutor concluded his open by telling the jury that the evidence would prove that even if Michael Moran wielded the weapon, Courtney was ultimately responsible for her father's death.
0: The prosecution also said that Courtney had actually confessed to helping Michael kill her dad, but the police never recorded her interrogation, which the police confirmed on the stand.
1: That afternoon, prosecutors called Detective Robert Fetty to the stand. He had taken Courtney's original tape-recorded statement. Her original version was that Michael did it, that she tried to talk him out of it. However, as Fetty explained in his testimony, that wasn't her only statement. While Michael was making his confession, Courtney had decided to make a second statement. She told me at that time that uh, uh, that she had helped uh, uh, plan the murder of her father. She had even admitted to making all the necessary preparations. She went in and checked on him to make sure he was asleep and to uh, go get the dog and bring it out. Courtney's second statement matched Michael's, right down to the detail about leaving the bat outside her father's door. But there was one difference that was a potential problem for the prosecution. Courtney's confession was not recorded. It was strictly stuff that she told two police officers, and the two police officers came and said, she told us this. On cross, Courtney's attorney drove the point home. You're saying that that, that tape recorder, which she was perfectly comfortable with talking to you for over two hours, about right there on your desk, is not turned on at the request of
0: a 16-year-old? Um, that's correct. Courtney's defense had asked for an acquittal. They said that Courtney's case proved reasonable doubt. On September twenty seventh, 2006, after three hours of deliberation, Courtney Schulhoff was found guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. After Courtney's sentence was handed to her, she was given the chance to speak. She shocked the courtroom when she said that she had killed her dad alone.
1: But while the sentence was a foregone conclusion, the trial did have one surprising twist left. Before the judge handed down the obligatory sentence, Courtney had the opportunity to address
0: the court. Um, Your Honor, I would like to um, openly admit in court that Michael Morin is not the person who killed my father. I was. On April 16, 2007, Michael Morin's trial began. The prosecution said Michael confessed and was all on tape. They also said that Michael's clothes proved that he had been the one that attacked Steve. His gray shirt and blue shorts had traces of Steve's DNA on them. The defense said that Michael was covering for Courtney. The defense had experts testify that the DNA was inconclusive and so were the fingerprints on the murder weapon. On April 24th, Courtney testified. During her testimony, I think they focused too much on her, quote, new look than anything else in this case. She was goth now
1: you killed your father. Yeah. She walked in with a baseball bat and started whacking away in her words. In fact, Courtney claimed that after she told Michael what she had done, he had urged her to go to the police.
0: I kept saying, we need to call the police, we need to call the police. I said, no, we don't need to call the police. So we started an argument, and then I said, listen, if you love me, you'll help me, because I need help lifting
1: his body. I don't know what to do, so I need help. And the shirt and shorts with her father's blood... Courtney testified that she had worn them, not Michael.
0: I just bought these shorts from the Internet, from Hollister, using my dad's credit cards, and I didn't want to get them messed up, so that's why I put the baseball shorts over
1: them. She described that she took the shorts and rolled them over three times so they would fit her. On cross, rolling her shorts wasn't the only fashion choice the prosecution questioned. I think within five questions, my trial partner had already had her admit to that she had already lied to the jury that day. And I didn't know it, but he goes, what's with this new, new look? She goes, this is new. I've been having like this for a while. But the prosecution had evidence to the contrary. We immediately showed her the picture when she got booked into the county jail two days before and when she didn't look like that. The prosecutor wrapped his cross-examination by suggesting that Courtney might see herself as a modern-day Juliet. Martyring herself for love. you familiar with uh, Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. According to the prosecutor, the quintessential tale of star-crossed young lovers had obvious parallels to the case, including the ending.
0: Oh, happy dagger!
1: This is thy nice sheath.
0: There, rust, and let me die. Remember that when she kills herself.
1: Yeah.
0: Are you the modern-day Juliet, Courtney? No. Mr. Jones. is it Courtney and Michael instead of Romeo and
1: Juliet? Yeah. Are you taking the dagger for your man here No, he is not a
0: man. Michael was facing the death penalty, and now he had to wait to hear his fate. On April twenty fifth, two thousand seven, Michael was found guilty of first degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, and he showed emotion in court, unlike Courtney. In March two thousand seventeen, Courtney's sentence was reduced to forty years in prison. I tried to look for information about Courtney and Michael now, and the only thing I found was a petition on change.org for Courtney to get a chance at parole. Personally, this case is really a he said, she said, and I'm not exactly sure who I think the real killer is. I think they both planned it together and wanted to be together without Courtney's dad getting in the way. I also think Courtney wanted her dad's money, which they didn't have a lot of. I personally think they should both stay in prison but I don't know if Courtney would have killed her dad if it weren't for Michael and vice versa. My book recommendation for this week is My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. Summary. 2000. Bright, ambitious, and yearning for adulthood, 15-year-old Vanessa Y. becomes entangled in an affair with Jacob Strain, her magnetic and guilful 42-year-old English teacher. 2017. Amid the rising wave of allegations against powerful men, a reckoning is coming due. Strain has been accused of sexual abuse by a former student who reaches out to Vanessa, and now Vanessa suddenly finds herself facing an impossible choice. Remain silent, firm in the belief that her teenage self willingly engaged in this relationship, or redefine herself and the events of her past. But how can Vanessa reject her first love, the man who has fundamentally transformed her and has been a persistent presence in her life. Is it impossible that the man she loved as a teenager and who professed to worship only her may be far different from what she has always believed? Alternating between Vanessa's present and her past, My Dark Vanessa juxtaposes memory and trauma with the breathless excitement of a teenage girl discovering the power her own body can wield. Okay, this book was hard for me to get through, but I liked it. This book is actually very similar to a lot of cases I've heard about, especially one in particular that maybe I'll cover. It was heartbreaking to read this book and reading from her past and present and how she views herself and relationships after everything that happened with this man. I definitely recommend this book, but it can be triggering to some people. I've never been through something like this in my personal life, but I struggled just to get through this book. I hope you all enjoy today's episode. I'll be back again next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. Please subscribe to my blog, follow me on Instagram, rate and review, support, anything helps me to be able to continue this passion of mine. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.